Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Um, Really privileged to have a fantastic guest this week, someone who is a real innovator. Uh, I don't use that term lightly, someone really helped change the game of coaching in England, uh, really helped revolutionise the way we we coach players and really has has had a lasting effect on the game here. It's uh, Simon Clifford, who was... um, uh, previously owner of Brazilian soccer schools, uh, worked at Southampton as well, and uh, also uh, owned Garston Football Club, semi-professional club. Um, really interesting story here. Like you know, I was just really captivated with someone who you know um, saw that maybe there was a, a gap in terms of the way we were we were we were coaching players in this country, we weren't giving them enough technical coaching. Uh, Travel to Brazil, uh, learnt from some of the best out there. Uh, he base also, you know, he, you know, he, 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 you know, he debunks the 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 myth that you know players just all learn on the street in Brazil. You know, there's a lot of organised football in Brazil uh, in youth clubs and uh, in academies. Uh, most of these players are involved in these sorts of these sorts of uh, these sorts of clubs. And just more interestingly, just the way they they coach the players there. You know, lots of technical work, lots of isolated work, lots of real quality in depth. Um, work with the ball, uh, longer sessions, obviously small-sided games, and uh, he went over there. He saw that and brought that back over here and implemented it, and and uh, he got a lot of uh, exposure in it. So a, a fantastic story, and uh, someone who who really inspires me, um, and uh, someone you know that this this really you know I took so much from this, and uh, always been intrigued about Simon and the work he's done. So. I know this is one you're you're going to enjoy, and it's definitely one uh, not to be missed. Uh, big announcement from the my personal football coach side of things. Uh, proud to announce West Bromwich Albion uh, now another uh, club partnership. Uh, this Category One uh, Top Academy is going to be utilised in the my personal football coach app. Obviously now during lockdown, uh, way to support their players with quality, world class learning. Um, players can upload their own videos, they can share and they can obviously log into the back end, uh, they can set the players' challenges and uh, all the coaches get access to the coaches' pass. So really excited to have this club partnership. Obviously they join Arsenal, Wolves and Middlesbrough as other Cat One academies, some of the best academies in the country, utilising uh, my personal football coach. And you know, the last week or so we've had clubs from Canada, America, England, uh, New Zealand and Australia sign up as well. And Dubai as well. Uh, big shout out to the Dubai Irish um, for joining us. So, listen. If you're interested in how my personal football coach can take your club to the next level, it's the it's the number one choice in the world. There, there's no one competing with it. Nothing gives you uh, that world class online access with my background, obviously. And, and obviously, you know that's why the the top clubs in the world are choosing it. Just drop me a DM, uh, and we can set you up a demo. Uh, but without further ado, let's get into the show. Simon Clifford, welcome to the show. Thanks, all. Can you just give us a brief uh, outline of your, your your playing and coaching journey up to this point, please? Yep. Playing-wise, I played football in school from about what we now call under-9s. I played for the under-11s team. 
when I wasn't under 11, I was banned for a year because I didn't wow. like to lose and would kick off at teachers even. And uh, I was a bit of a young Roy Keane. Carried on playing in school until what we now call year nine. And that year transitioned into athletics and became quite serious about running, um, distance running. Ended up by about 17, 18. I was running 80, 90 miles a week and became pretty reasonable at it. Didn't engage with football again until my degree, which was sports in Leeds, and didn't play again after sort of stopping in year nine until 1994 when I played for Tadcaster Albion Reserves against Eccles Hill. So I was out of it for nearly a decade. On the degree side, carried on studying, and um, but playing-wise, I stopped for that whole period. So tell us about your coaching journey then. Tell us about how that, that, that started and went. So uh, upon graduating, I took a job as a teacher and began coaching the football teams within the school, uh, beginning with under nines. Then we started in under eights, the tens and elevens, and threw myself into it. And I think very much football had been my first love. And um, in fact, when I'd sort of veered off from it, in the middle of, of high school, it was really because I was I was a bit of a, a dribbler. I liked that side of the game. It wasn't too much encouraged, and I ended up getting fed up with, I suppose, teachers being on my back. They were probably right to be on my back, but um, I fell out of love with it. But rediscovered my love, I think, on my degree, and then in a teaching sense. And I wanted the best for the kids that I worked with, so I started accessing resources that were available at the time. Uh, that I thought would help them in the coaching and my degree had been very good for giving me a, a grounding in that we must put skill first and I didn't see that in the the sort of way coaching courses were run and all the rest of it at that time we'd had the FA prelim introduced to us on our degree and when I saw how coaching was done it, it didn't seem to fit with what I was seeing on the academic side and so in school I was looking for the kids for something different so I got videos on IACT um, looked at some stuff from Italy and then I'd been obsessed with the Brazilian national team from, from way back, maybe from the 82 World Cup and I wanted to get some resources as to how Brazil trained. In fact, the first session I ever put on in my life, coaching session, it, it wasn't actually coaching. I stuck on uh, the BBC documentary Boys from Brazil, John Motson narrating, played it to the kids in this classroom, I said, that's how we're going to play. This was on a Tuesday. This, that's how we're going to play. We're going to start on Thursday. But I didn't have too much idea as to how Brazil trained or anything else. I wrote to our FA. Uh, they didn't have too much information either and, and suggested to me the Brazilian were maybe naturals. And I was very lucky, fortunate, in the, in the midst of all this, maybe I've been teaching two years, um, Janinho signs for Middlesbrough. And I was on that straight away, contacted the club wanted to know if there was a way to speak to him get hold of him and uh so yeah that led that led me into this interaction with him that began um the start of 1996. and then to, and then to tell us more because obviously that grew into something you know quite spectacular didn't it so it just says go through it just briefly then we'll go into a bit more detail just yeah so Janini and i became really good friends he hadn't met up with too many other people in england he couldn't speak English very well, nor his family, his mum and dad was with him. I think because I was a school teacher, his dad 
liked the fact of getting a relationship with me. Um, his dad wasn't too keen on him. I don't think sort of socialising with with the other footballers at that time. And so I'd coach on an evening in Leeds um, with the children that I worked with. I'd get in the car, I'd drive to Ingleby Barwick where Janino lived, and I'd sit there till about 11 o'clock at night, and I'd quiz him as to how players in Brazil were developed. Um, I'd write things down, I'd go home, look at it, I'd be back the next night, and this went on for months. And eventually I said to him, I'd like to actually go out to Brazil and see firsthand. He talked to me about this game, Football de Salon, Futsal, and I'd never heard of this. I was, subs I was subscribed and I was in a, a fair few coaching associations here in England at the time, the Association of Football Coaches and Teachers that were backed up by Adidas and a few more. I went to seminars. I'd never heard of, of um, Futsal and I couldn't find anybody else that had. So I said I wanted to go out there and see it. I said I'd like to meet some of the, the great players that inspired me, Pele, Zico, Kareka, people like that. His dad said to me, these guys are very busy. My son's the number 10 of Brazil. He said, we haven't met these guys. But I, I persisted. I got a fax machine, faxed the Brazilian embassy in London, um, started writing letters. Not much of this worked, but I, I, I set myself, I thought, I'm going to go out to Brazil and look at this game and I want to meet some of these guys and see how they thought they'd See, listen to them tell me how they developed. So um, I set up this trip. The BBC ended up coming out with me from uh, Leeds. I was still a teacher at the time and didn't really have any money. So I borrowed five five thousand pounds to make this trip and went off in the summer of '97. Stayed initially in a in like a mini stadium at the University of São Paulo, where São Paulo Football Club is one of their training bases. And it, it was pretty uh, Spartan, a um, bit like a prison cell type of thing, but a little bit bigger. There was co cockroaches everywhere. But I was in football heaven because I'd walk out from the, the sort of dormitory I was in on the morning. There was only me staying in this stadium. And there'd be people training, exercises, movements, drills, passes that I'd never seen. It was extraordinary. And then on an evening, I see people outside playing uh, futsal, get talking to people. The, the newspapers in Brazil took an interest in what I was doing and um, that got some sort of well-known players, the ones that I'd, I'd been after, it got them interested in talking to me. Um, so Zico, I end up meeting up with, spend time with him at his place in Rio. Greca invites me over to his football centre in um, uh, another part of São Paulo. I want to meet Ronaldo's first coach. I want to see the scruffiest sort of street corner clubs. Wanted to see amateur football. So I had a video camera, a dictaphone, and I went everywhere, but spent most of my time um, with São Paulo Football Club and looking at them from what we call the Denti Late Age Group, which is under 12 right up to the juniors, uh, so the team before the first team. I was interested how those clubs were structured. Janino, before I went out, said to me, he'd got quite, he, he'd, he'd been brought into England um, on a record transfer for a Brazilian. He was, it was the highest fee ever play, paid for a footballer from Brazil at the time in 95. Doesn't sound a lot today, but when Middlesbrough, who were, uh, you know, Middlesbrough had a fair bit of money at, at that moment, they, was, they were outspending some of the biggest teams in the Premier League. Paid £4.75 million pounds for him. 
he was Brazil's number 10, was South American Player of the Year. And he came to Middlesbrough maybe four times the wages he'd had in Sao Paulo. And I think he expected four times the structure in terms of the training centre, the coaching. And the, in that time in the Premier League, there wasn't very much. And he'd say to me some days, is Manchester United even the same as this? That we're hardly training. There's the places where we're training, the exercises we're doing, there's no coaching. And um, he said to me in Brazil, you'll find even this... The smallest street corner club has a better structure and I thought that's a wild statement to me and it was only going out there that um, I saw what he meant and I could only see say getting to San Paulo Football Club at that time was a bit like it reminded me of them kids on the old Gene Wilder film that walked into Charlie in the Chocolate Factory it was just incredible in terms of the nutrition the psychological support um, the facilities the detail in the work it was amazing and so met let's, with let's, let's, just, let, let's, let's talk a bit about that then Santos I mean I don't because you're, you're getting quite depth it's quite interesting because I'm, I'm already captivated because I've always been uh, you know at all and really interested in Brazilian football so tell us about when, when you said you first went there and you said uh, you, you looked in there and you saw those drills and those movements and stuff what, what were they doing you're a coach so you know tell us what sort of stuff were they doing in, in, the, in the club there in the academy um, I think the big difference, it was Sao Paulo Football Club, and the, the, the big difference, I think, was the use of the ball. We didn't, in England at that time, you know, if you looked at a, you looked at a session, you know, most of the sessions were sort of uh, X's and O's, and you maybe have one ball and they're working on a phase of play or some sort of gale element. element. People were out with the ball. I'd see age groups at Sao Paulo just out with a ball between two of them. You know, in in rows, two, 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 doing that for two hours, uh, stuff that we'd have maybe frowned on. Saw so like what's like just passing, receiving technical, passing and receiving techniques technical. for two for two, <clears throat> for two hours, doing it, not yeah. changing the exercise that much, but drilling down on technique. Um, people doing, you know, when I when I came back and I started doing what we'd now call rondos, I had people from local sort of pro clubs in Yorkshire coming down and say, well, that's just piggy in the middle. Yeah. But all right, doing rondos at the time, which weren't, um, but a lot of individual work with the ball on their own. And later on, I got working with some clubs in England that got me down Middlesbrough through Dave Parnaby. Everton had me working there for a bit. Um, Colin Harvey and Tosh Farrell, early advocates of what I was trying to do. And I would say, this is how they're working in Brazil. And this, you know, uh, say they'd say, well, okay, we could put that in the warm-up. But in Brazil, it was actually the whole session. And I suppose mm. when we talk about isolated practice now and in the last years, you know, the last decade, you know, I read sort of, you know, some people against that. It's the basis. It's the basis of football. And that's what it was there. And you show me still players that are more technically adept than South Americans, I don't think there is. So their system, actually, when I came away, was very simple, but it was very different to how we were going about it. And I, even in the warm-up, you know, the sort of warm-up that we would, the warm-ups that we would have now, the last sort of two, three years in the Premier League, you know, we, we didn't have even dynamic stretching in, in essence, in our, in the way we sort of warmed up in, in the Premier League, even in that. Uh, in that period, everything was the, the warm-up. The, the, 
the stretching warm up they did with the the movements and clap it was almost like a dance um but the use of the ball and the ball was king i got playing with some i got in with some sort of families of brazilian national team players who were maybe playing under 21s kids who were involved at sao paulo and i got playing with, with some of these lads on a sunday and all the rest of it and i know i noticed the the shouts as we were playing boa bola boa dribbles good dribble good pass and in england all you would get was you know obviously get rid of it oh smash that sort of thing yeah it was just it was so different it was untrue by the end of that trip i thought this is a disgrace this is a national disgrace where importing players in and i'd got i'd got friends good friends with another player at middlesbrough a great lad who uh, michael cox in zonal marking i think he calls him the first deep lying true deep line midfielder of the team deep, deep line playmaker of the premier league era emerson who'd been portuguese player at the year at porto we brought him from there but he was brazilian it comes to portugal sort of early on got a Portuguese password. We brought this lad in, and in a different way, he impressed me, football-wise, as, as much as Janino. And he was different. Again, he'd come out of, he'd come out of football, the salon. But he was night and day to players in England at that time. Yes, we'd had, you know, Roy Keane, an unbelievable player and competitor. Uh, you know, the end of the nineties, you're getting Vieira in the Premier League. But this lad, in his touch and in his range of passing. And in Brazil, I just saw there was innumerable of these players, and the the focus was the ball. So at the end of that trip, I was quite happy going into that trip to carry on being a school teacher. Um, by the end of it, what I'd witnessed had shocked me to such an extent. I was in a in a in a, a position as a sort of England-loving guy that we'd not qualified for the 1994 World Cup. You know, we'd had that documentary, um, you know, Graham Taylor was a fantastic manager and man. And with that documentary on, on the sort of coaching setup that we had at the time, it, you know, even though there was little bits, you sort of got the impression this isn't all that serious. When I'd left football as a, you know, uh, 13, 14 year old and got into running, I didn't leave football because football wasn't that serious, but I was quite serious about it. I uh, I was very serious about it, and I liked people who were serious in things. When I got into the running, an individual sport, I became I wasn't that good at that at the beginning, but I became reasonable by training, and I, I got very serious about it. I saw people in Brazil that were serious about football, and I came back and I thought, right. I didn't have any particular plan how to do it, but I thought I'm going to leave teaching and get people training like this. Uh, I felt like I had to do it, and yeah, so that was the start of you know what became these soccer, these soccer schools and all the rest of it. You talked about it briefly there. You mentioned it about the isolated work, and it's you know very topical. But I mean, because a lot of people just think Brazilians, you know, just innately have you know great technique with the ball, but it's just the cultural thing, isn't it? And they just spend time with the ball, and like you say, even in those. Academy environments. There's, there's an, a, a um, Cruzeiro uh, run a private school here in Phuket. Actually, I've, I've visited the other day, and they've got Brazilian coaches, and they're just just some technique. Or the day before, I was training a day, and it's just all technical work. And the boys, you know, so even in those 
structured environments. There's very, you know, ball in the, you know, individual orientated. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because almost still now we have a problem in this country with, you know, people think, oh, why are we not just playing a game? Why are we spending time, you know, developing these? And we're almost doing less technical work now <laughs> in these academies than we were now. And you're talking about because you used to maybe just be passing, passing, passing. But now it's like, you know, oh, well, just put them in the game and get into it. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm con- completely in accord with you and um, couldn't under you know struggle to understand anybody that can't uh, that can't see that uh, the individual that technique is the basis of everything. Whether you're going into tactics, whatever you're going into, um, is impossible if you haven't got mastery of the if you haven't got mastery of the ball. When you go into them things, you'll find them that much easier, and you'll be able to do uh, far more complex things team-wise if you have got mastery and th- that was the way I saw them them approach it so again you know at the time San Paolo Football Club had beaten um, AC Milan they were they were world club champions when I was there or had been just a year before and right up to the you know you had uh, Denti Late first age group under 12 Infantile Juvenile Junior they work in two-year age bands so two years, two years. So, so right up to the sort of 20, 20 laters under 12, right up to the 20s, 21s. The sessions had a heavy technique focus. When you talk them under 12s and 14s, the, se- the session was just nearly all technique. It was stuff that we, we wouldn't have done and still don't. Um, and now I'm not sure today if, you know, there's a friend of mine was out in, you know, working in Brazil and then he's he's, he's got a, a keen eye on what's happening there at the minute. I don't know if they're going to European uh, right now. I think countries like Uruguay uh, is still very ball orientated, and Argentina. Well, this is the basic of it, basics of it. Zico said to me when I was with him, up to fourteen, just ball, ball, and ball, and that was what I saw across. Um, Brazil and it was what I tried to bring it's what I tried to bring back with what did they have um, what were the young did, did they net, was 12 the first age group they had in the academy yes yeah so then pre that it's just all street football type stuff like that street football but I'm trying not to name drop but Rivellino said to me people haven't played in the street in Brazil for 30 years and right. in the favelas people maybe are playing in the street the rest of them not and there is you know, there's so many places to play. Um, we used to talk years ago about Brazilian players coming out, you know, developing on the beaches and, and all that type of thing. I think that was just because journalists from this country or even whoever it was, our sometimes the national team goes, you go to Rio and you come from the airport and you see all them people on the beach. That isn't the reality of most of Brazil. And obviously, Sao Paulo itself is uh, 90k from the beach or something like that. So you've got futsal courts, you've got other areas. Um, the football pitches are everywhere. So what Janino said to me, even the smallest street corner club, if you went away before the before Dentilate, before the club, the club takes players in. The the sort of the grassroots teams, if you like, that are working on a patch of grass or they're working. You know, they had a bag of balls and the session was, at the beginning of the session, it was a ball each. I, 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 my Brazilian soccer schools was based on more or less the rhythm of the sessions that I saw there, which was 
if it was a two-hour session and they did strain at times for two hours, it was more or less 40 minutes individual with the ball. That's exaggerated as to, as to what I saw with some, but I was mentored a little bit by a guy called Walter Gamma, and he was a coach across Brazil and then ended up um, coaching the Jamaican team that qualified, I think, for whichever World Cup it was, uh, with Rennie Simones. And Walter took me on, stayed at his house, and I, I, I copied a lot, a lot from his sessions. But maybe 40 minutes individual with the ball, stroke, individual stroke paired. Because first you with the ball, then going off, pass, receive, the basic passes, the basic receives, then doing them with movement. So individual or paired, 40 minutes. Then 40 minutes group work, whether it's rondos or passing drills and exercises. And the last 40 minutes, of course, we need it the chaos, the play, where you put these things into, you put the stuff that you're, you're getting an individual into practice. And that, it was an intoxicating mix that if I, if I was coaching sort of groups today and teams, I, I don't think I would veer too much from that. So I think, you know, when people go on about isolated practice, what are they thinking? That anybody's, you know, going to be stood with a ball and do nothing else but that? No. Football's a chaotic, multi. Oops, there you go. <laughs> it's a timing. Oh. <laughs> Football's a multi-dimensional, chaotic, uh, random game, and you know that was clear from the yeah. beginning. But you need the time with the ball on your own. You need to nail that st stuff down, and not just, you know, moves to beat or that type of thing. Controlling it, passing it, shooting it, all of it. But for that, it needs time with you and the ball. Um, the last years I've got working with all manner of wonderful players at a professional level and 23s at the level before that and as you'll know obviously you can get to you can get to those realms and areas but people might not still have what I'd call the basic techniques mm. which you can work on with them at that age but you can get it all when you're a kid and I think it, it should be that we get that first so Dintessa, you come back from uh, Brazil and you're on a mission. So how do you then go about changing the, the game in England? Yeah, so came back. Um, the BBC, who I persuaded to go with me, they made a documentary which ended up being called A Whole New Ball Game, which was focused on futsal. And they put out, upon my return to Brazil, when I'm, I'm still a teacher, they put out clips from this documentary and they go on breakfast news and maybe the lunchtime BBC news. And Arsene Wenger, through Claire Tomlinson, who was his PR person at the minute, gets in touch and wanted to know what I was doing. Uh, Glenn Hoddle, the England manager, gets in touch through John Gorman, his assistant, rings the BBC and says, how can I get in touch with this guy? John Gorman comes to meet me in Leeds on behalf of Glenn Hoddle and says, some of this stuff you're doing is fantastic. We've got Graham Lassau playing at fullback or wingback. We'd like him to learn a trick or two. Would you mind working with him? And I'm thinking, well, I'm just a school teacher, really. This is a bit. Dave Parnaby gets in touch with me from Middlesbrough. He was England under-15s manager when we had the schoolboy ESF 18. Then he's academy director. The, the chart of equality's just come in. So Dave said to me, could you come down and do some we've got to do in service with our coaches 40 hours a year. Would you come and put a day on for us? 
As I say, Colin Harvey at Everton, Alan Irving at Newcastle, Tony Carr at West Ham. And I'm developing this little school in Leeds that was, the kids were coming for free initially. I just coached them for free. It was an offshoot of what I was doing in the school. And I thought, well, if I need, if I leave teaching, I'm going to have to fund myself somehow. Um, so I started charging the kids for the soccer school. Not very much. It was just a pound an hour. And people kept were coming down to my school. The teams that I, the clubs that asked me to do some coaching with them or in service, um, I asked them could my lads play a match against them. So these these kids who, who'd been working with me in the first soccer school have now been with me for a couple of years by maybe 1998, the sort of time Janino come, came down since then. And we got reasonable results against some of these uh, professional clubs. And I think it was also the way that we'd played. And so people started taking a bit of note of that. More TV comes down and films us. I'd say our kids at the time, I was thinking about it for whatever reason yesterday, but the first group that we had at Brazilian soccer schools they ended up with a different technique, I think, to anybody else in England at the time. We might not have been the best players, but we passed it differently. We caressed it a bit different. I think people saw that on TV and all the rest of it. Year after, I get exposure. Michael Owen soccer skills. People to do with Michael Owen approached me to do a project with him. I wrote a book with him. did a TV series that went out BBC every Friday, and so the interest in what I was doing was getting bigger and bigger. I'm talking about futsal, I'm talking about technique. And people want to have a school like I'm doing in Leeds. I didn't really know exactly how I would open more schools and somebody suggested to me franchising. So looked into that, not in a particularly big way, cobbled some contracts together for the people who did, made it very cheap. It was like 500 quid to start, that was all. A thousand quid a year after that. and. Within no time, I've got 30 soccer schools across the country. Lego then come in, toy company. Snickers approached, approached us. I mean, Lego offered a million pounds to sponsor this vision I had for the soccer schools. Snickers, wow. the chocolate people, they offered to double it. McDonald's were in the thing as well, but I went with Lego. And that gave me, uh, again, I was very, very lucky, but that gave me a, a contract with them and some sort of basis how I could really roll these things out. So the the schools spread, you know, even further across the UK. Then we got started to go overseas about the year 2000, 2001. Uh, United States, California, Bangkok, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Canada, and, and on. And, you know, eventually they ended up on every continent. Wow. So then that's interesting, isn't it? Because you're almost like... Um... You're a pioneer in terms of the Brazilian way, but also becoming a businessman. I think about this a lot because obviously I get a lot of people asking me about how I create my first football coach and that sort of thing. How difficult was it dealing with that side of the business? I'm, my background is in teaching as well. I almost had to upskill myself. How difficult was it becoming a businessman as well as a coach stroke teacher and managing all of that? I think I, I always put the coach in first, which possibly early on didn't make me... The, the best businessman um, and I wasn't like you I wasn't really trained in business or anything like that I had to sort of work it out as I went along my my passion like yours came from the football 
and I wanted to pass on these things I was learning. I felt a, an almost evangelical zeal to do it. And then it, the second thing came, well, how do I find a way to do that? How can, you know, how can I fund spreading this out? So I wasn't at the beginning looking to make profit or any of that. In fact, Brian Marwood, who was a friend of mine, he's now at Man City running the City Football Group. Brian at the time was with Nike. And Brian was one of my first backers even before Lego. And um, I, I offered to Brian to do the schools, that which I ended up selling to Lego for a million pounds. I said to Brian, before Lego, I said, look, I'll put all these schools out, make the ball for it, which Mitre ended up doing. That came from Glenn Hoddle. Mitre made, made the first sort of futsal ball in England. Uh, Glenn Hoddle put me onto them. But I'd said to Brian, I'll roll these schools out. I said, just match my teaching wage, which was about 15,000 a year at the time. And I said, I'll just do all of this with Nike. And that was all I wanted. I was, I'd have been quite happy to just, you know, pay the bills and all the rest of it, but pass this message on and coach football this way. But okay, you go on, you get a bit better at business, you understand it. And, and then it, it grows. I think the, I didn't find it too much of a problem juggling it until I start something else called Soccer Tots because I was very, if I had my time again, I wouldn't, I would, I would, I would approach doing the Soccer Tots slightly differently. Um, but I wanted England to get an edge on other countries as I saw it. My soccer schools had started very early anyway. We started at five, six, which wasn't the norm back in the day and I thought we can take that younger I was looking at Serena Williams and, and Vanessa in, in tennis I was looking at Tiger Woods Boris Becker when he'd started I thought if we could get the technique nailed down even earlier so this soccer tots thing I started that ended up in about 20-30 countries then I buy a football club in Leeds um, that was nine below the Premier League but I had a sort of project for that. And in the midst of all of this, Sir Clive Woodward approached me to be his right-hand man at Southampton. And that's when it got a bit difficult for me because I had, you know, I was making DVDs before YouTube. I was, I was just seemed to be doing everything. And I had a little bit of a plan. Soccer Tots was part of it in this club, but then things from the outside were coming to me, like the Southampton thing. And that period I started to find juggling all that I'd built difficult. You've got people ringing you 24 hours a day because you've got guys in Australia, you've got guys in the uh, United States, you've got, um, I'm at Southampton, I'm then trying to also run the football club that we've, it was, then it became very chaotic and difficult. So that then Southampton um, gig with uh, Five Woodward, how did that come about and what exactly were you doing? Yes, so Clive approached me at the end of 2004. Um, he, Clive Woodward wrote, uh, wrote a couple of emails and um, I was that much sort of a man on a mission at the time. I wasn't even that keen on, on meeting up with Clive, not that I didn't like him or anything, or I probably thought meeting him would be a distraction. Uh, in the back of my mind, I don't know why I thought he would be meeting me, but. Uh, um, he wrote a couple of emails and I thought, OK, I, I'd read his book, uh, Winning. Um, I thought, OK, we'll, we'll, 
I'll meet up and have a chat. So he came to Leeds and met me for dinner. He st stayed in Leeds for a couple of days, but met me. He asked if he could come for a couple of days with me. I think there's that why, that's why I was unsure at the beginning. I would have met him, of course, but I think I, I kind of thought, well, what's this going to be all about? But the night he met me was a year to the day that he'd won the Rugby World Cup. And that probably stuck with me a bit. He took me out for a dinner in Leeds. At that time, another name dropped, but I had Socrates with me as well. He was the former Brazil captain who was with me at Garforth. So it was me, yeah. Clive and Socrates and my dad, who I brought to talk to Socrates while I talked to Clive. Clive was very insistent on seeing me. I was like, I think I had so many things on. I thought, what's this all about? This rugby guy's coming to see me. He wants to be with me two days. Uh, that was my life at the minute. It was, you know, things come in from everywhere. We had Todd Grip came down in the same period sent by Sven Goran Eriksson. It was a, wow. a mad, mad period. But Clive came, spent a couple of days with me. I, from that dinner... And the next day, I did actually get very interested in, in him because I think on a tactical side, football-wise, he said some things to me that, and suggested some things that I'd thought and believed in that I'd never heard anybody else in football say. And so his brain interested me a little bit. And he went away. We keep emailing, talking, meet up again, gets my wife down to meet him and his wife and eventually says, I'm going to Southampton Football Club. He'd been offered a job from the FA by Mark Palios, who was chief executive at the time, a performance director, and didn't take that because he wanted to actually coach and manage in football. said football had been his first love. He'd met the chairman of Southampton, and things had progressed, and they'd offered him a, a role there to initially come in and sort of learn the ropes but in time manage the football team with a coach and he said the reason he'd come to me he'd been around the world looking for a coach to go on this sort of thing with him journey and what he'd read and watched and what he was seeing from me sort of wanted that to be me so this period of talking to me went on for quite a few months asked me to come with him Initially at Southampton, him and I together would have the reserve team. But in time, we'd be, you know, possibly bizarre though it sounds now, we'd have been in charge of the first team. A bit of a jump. I, at the time, had just got my first promotion at Garford. It's a non-league team. Clive's come from rugby. But I could see if we had the reserves for a year or so and cut our teeth with that, I thought, well, maybe it would have a chance of, of you know, maybe we could do something. Also working individually with the players, I'd be doing. Um, Southampton had a great crop at the time. And so after a few times of saying no, I said to him, I would do it. So punitively, we were given the titles, performance director, Clive and myself, head of sports science. But essentially, we were the manager and coach in waiting. Um, and getting down there was so many positives. I got to work with wonderful players. We had Gareth Bale in our reserve team. We gave him his debut for the reserves. Adam Lalana, who was already in that. But the, the group of first-year scholars that I got, and some second-years to work with each morning, Clive and I were going to work them hard. We were going to work hard. Both of us had that in common. And I think 
knowing the way Leeds United runs today, the, the sort of operation we, we were putting in place was a little little bit Bielsa-like in, in terms of the hours, and I think even in terms of some of the some of the work. And um, so we'd get the lads in early on the morning. They were all staying at this thing that the, the, the chairman had bought. He'd bought a sort of old guest house, turned it into a lodgings. It was called The Lodge. So Theo Walcott, Nathan Dyer, Martin Craney, Dexter Blacksock, David McGoldrick, Matty Mills, Leon Best, a couple more great young players. They'd come with us on the morning. We'd train at the club, individual technique for an hour, seven o'clock in the morning. Or maybe they'd, we'd get there at seven, they'd be there maybe half past. And at first they were a little bit, well, what on earth is this, getting up at this time and all the rest of it. I was also expecting them to train on an evening. So if like when Theo broke through into the first team, he was training with Harry at half ten, he'd be training with me at seven o'clock. And then on a night we'd all get together. I think it was called St. Edward's or King Edward's School, where the academy was. And this same group, some of who were in the first team, they train on an evening again with me. And we do futsal and stick music on. They weren't that keen on that at first. Nathan Dyer and Theo were particularly... Uh, but we got a vibe going. And um, we got such a good little bond between us within maybe a month or so. If one of them was injured, they'd turn up just to stick the music on or to be part of it. Leon Best had gathered them all together in the morning, get them out of bed. It was good, one of the happiest, I suppose, coaching times of my life. Sometimes a player would ring me in the afternoon, like Bestie, and he'd say, can I do another session? That would mean he was training four times, and we'd just do individual technique. And when I eventually left Southampton, uh, the effect we'd had on them, I think one thing that stands out to me is a little story. Maybe... Six, nine months later, I'll come on to why I left in it in a moment, but Nathan Dyer rang me. I said, I, um, he rang my office, missed, missed him, and I come in, I rang him, I said, how are you doing? He said, not, 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 not too good. I said, how come? I said, you scored last night, which I saw Steve Cottrell was manager at the time. He'd, he'd scored the night before. I said, I'm not that happy. I said, why? He said, well, we're off today and we're doing nothing. I said, well, that's the norm, really, in football. And he said, well, you told us if we're not going forwards, we're going backwards, we should be doing stuff. I was working three times a day with you or... So that was a mindset change. And uh, yeah, we got some great work going with all of them. We'd have them around Clive's apartment. We'd talk Johnny Wilkinson. We'd show them the individual work Johnny did. Clive had some trophies that Johnny had won. I don't remember which ones they were, but they were quite big. We'd try to impress them with them. We'd say, you can be the Johnny Wilkinson of mm. uh, football through hard work. But culturally, there was a lot of, there was a fair bit of resistance and I can understand why. Um, Many things that Clive and I were proposing were, were fairly new. I believed in a tactical sense on a sort of a man-to-man -man marking type thing. It's pretty much uh, the style at Leeds based on ridiculous levels of fitness. So there was all that type of thing. And I think Clive was redoing the training ground. We were doing that up. But uh, it was a difficult working environment. The sessions I loved. But sometimes the players would say to us, best of all, Dyer would say, I feel sorry for you two, they're telling us not to listen to you and this, that and the other. It was difficult and eventually I think having what I had at home, I built this 
Empire Soccer Schools. I had this club that I'd bought to do serious things with that I just to say got going at Garforth. I could have bought a club slightly higher. I could have at the time got a conference, nearly a conference club in Farsley Celtic or Geisley. I went for Garforth. I thought this is more of a challenge. I can feed our young players through it. So in a way, Southampton, if it had been interesting to me and I suppose a bit smoother, um, it would have been all right. But I was young, I was ambitious, impetuous, and we've got Harry Redknapp there, lovely man, Dave Bassett, lovely man, but different ways to us. Dennis Wise had come in, and you know some days it was like a, it was chaos. So um, I've I had enough. Like ca- you're uh, you're t- two outsiders in in that football world, like you and Clive, you know, coming from with your different ideas and. As we all know, football is very insular and, you know, not not that open to maybe old dogs knowing new tricks, as it were. Yeah, it was difficult, um, but I learned so much from it. Um, if I had my time again, I'd have stuck it out. I met Clive, you know, I was with Clive in London um, maybe a year ago and maybe maybe two years ago. And we talked about it and all of that type of thing. I'd have probably stuck it out, but I was not a, not a person at the time. I meditate today and I do all sorts of wonderful practices like that. But at the time, I wasn't a guy who could sit still for a minute. And um, hmm. I saw some some of what we were doing there. I just thought we're, we're just kicking our heels here. We, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't see it. Uh, I couldn't see it having a happy ending and, and, and wanted to come back to, to, to my own work. I'm interested to know then, how did you upskill yourself on all the individual techniques? You talked about, you know, these, the Brazilian way and the skill techniques. I mean, for me, you know, I was always assessed by a Brazilian foot. My first tr- coaching tracksuit was a Brazilian tracksuit, you know, team tracksuit. I remember it, that, 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 that blue one. But I mean, so, so that, you know, very much I was just kind of mimicking the, the, the skills of the players I loved almost and what I saw on TV, you know, that, those initial things. How did you upskill yourself to... To, to be able to go and work with first team players on technique like Gareth Bale and those guys. Yeah, I think it went back to when I, even pre the Brazilian stuff, when I first started coaching, um, I'm like 23, 24, and taking the kids in school. And I, in fact, go right back to when I was a supporter at Middlesbrough. I've got some drawings that I made. Uh, 1980, so I was 9 or 10. We don't have VHS at the time, but Middlesbrough have a number seven. It was my favourite player called Terry Cochran from Northern Ireland. Socks rolled down, shirt out, step overs, little movements like that. And I never understood what he'd done to be a player. I used to stand, think, what has he just done? And that was my focus of the game, waiting for him to do it. And a few years ago, my dad was a policeman. We had these old police diaries where I'd tried to draw it in pen. And when we got video later on, I could slow those movements down. And as a player, I was a skill-based player and a skill-interested player. When I started teaching, I wanted to teach the kids skills like that, effective skills. And so 23-24, I'd had VHS in the flat that myself and Gillian lived in Leeds. I'd play things, I'd watch them, and then I'd do them in the sort of living room. We were just in a two-bedroom flat at the time, but I'd do them in there. And same when I started Janino and all the Brazilian stuff, I would indoors play the video and spend a few hours learning it myself. 
and ended up realising if I can learn this at my age when I'm in, you know, early to mid-twenties, how powerful is this going to be for kids? So everything I did later on, whether it was a pass, whether it was whatever it was, I taught myself it first and didn't try to pass it on until I'd, I'd got it and was playing football three times a week. And I suppose in terms of transference, do these isolated skills work? Yes, some of the football I was playing was with good players. But I could put this stuff as a 20, mid-23, 20, you know, 24, I could put some of it into games. So that fascinated me. So yeah, I made sure I learned it first and I enjoyed learning it. If I wasn't in the house, the place I ended up running the first soccer school, I was down at Roundy Park on my own and got... Uh, and would still, you know, I've got a dodgy knee at the minute, but if I had, if I didn't and could run about, I'd still be doing that today. I love, I love being with the ball. It's interesting now because it's a lot more difficult back then because pre-YouTube and, you know, internet, all those were accessible and everything's, you know, app, like, you know, those things. So, so as in, you know, what you're just trawling that old footage of games and watching those, you know, as much, much, much of those top players as possible. Yeah, I just would stop the video. And I'd look at exactly what they'd done. I'd find another one. I am a obsessive type person, mm. which, you know, at some parts of parts of your life, that can be a problem because anything you get into, you're sort of obsessed. But when I studied, I was obsessed with my study and my degree, whatever I get into. And all of my time in football, I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with how to make it better. So it didn't bother me how many videos I had to trawl through. So if I'm doing, you know, a particular Brazil match, I'm stopping every bit and trying to see the part of the foot he's used for that how do we take that away use that in an isolated practice how do we use it in a practice where we've got some movement maybe i i, I mean on my first not my first dvd it was my or thing like that i did michael owen as a visual thing one called goal gol and learned to play the brazilian way which was really successful everywhere and i did one with jj kotcher on that learn to play the Brazilian way, this was all before YouTube, I walked through stages that I think we need to go through from isolated practice to using it in a game. Okay, first against a cone, then against a still opponent, then a walking opponent, then a then you at a bit of pace. If you do all of that, you trans you transfer everything. But the time it took to learn didn't uh, bother me. But I suppose when you go to Southampton and you're working with them, even the first team, Obviously, you can do things with the ball, even passing-wise, that maybe they can't. And so they get a bit, bit of respect from you straight away because of that. But again, I thought, well, I ain't no great footballer. So if I can learn that, mm. they can. I can pass it on to them. And um, But the older they get, obviously, the less... I used to watch Alan Shearer when I first... Not when I first started, but I don't know what point it was. I used to get so frustrated. If I could just teach him this or that, I could add this to him. I could... You know what I mean? And late, I didn't know Alan Shearer and I was way off his level. But later on, obviously, you get working with players like that. And like you, you, you can pass on these things. Interesting. Do you think like you're, you talked about that, understanding how players or people or children learn? Because do you think it's important that you're, you're, te- you're a primary school teacher, right? Is that correct? Same as That's me. Right. I was a primary school teacher. I worked across the uh, age of nothing. That was really important in my coaching and, and my understanding how children learn. They're just pedagogy but also just generally you know being that experience of you know and just and do you think that's why sometimes there's a maybe a difference between the sports science 
community and maybe the coaching stroke teacher fraternity who have that experience on the ground and maybe they, you know, because they're talking about, oh, you know, that doesn't transfer or they have, maybe haven't had that experience on the ground or in the classroom. Exactly. It's strange, right? Exactly. I'd never thought of it like that. I mean, you're exactly right. I'd never thought of it in that way. Um, I've been so lucky, I think, to have the different experiences. Um, my degree is the sports science. I mean, with people like that today, I'm doing postgraduate stuff at the minute. I've got the teaching side back to that young age. I've got, yeah, I've never thought of it that way. You're exactly right. And maybe that is a reason that people can't see it because I just can't understand how you, how you wouldn't. Well, essentially, because I, when you were talking about that, you know, your Brazilian soccer schools, I, I almost had that feeling when we were at Spurs in the early days when we were under Chris Ramsey and John McDermott doing lots of ball mastery and 1v1, like a very Dutch Ajax style thing, and no one else was really doing that in the country. And the, the, the you know, the, the results we're having were obviously see with the players, you know, we're upskilling these players, but no one still there was so much resistance to it because people were just, it was very un English, very unconventional, you know getting players on the ball, telling them not to pass, you know, is completely opposite to, you know, and there's, certain, there's still resistance to that. People say, well, still, you know, there's still people fighting against that, even though they can still see the fruits of the labour. Yeah, again, I see some of the debates that you've had on Twitter and things like that, and on some of the points, I think, well, how could anybody even debate you on that? It's, um, But maybe it is people who are just purely sports science and haven't had the, I don't know, but... What I've realised in football, and I've been in it now for nearly 30 years, is things, one, I don't get in the debates anymore, and that's one thing, it's, it's nice not to be in them and just sort of guess on with what you're doing and what I'm doing, because from my, from my side, ramming it down people's throats doesn't, it works to an extent, but you then create all sorts of problems and all sorts of, yeah. uh, so I just let whatever be, but I think a lot of it goes in cycles, and you know, things are accepted, then they're not. And running, running, running has come in and out of fashion in coaching about three times since since I started. Hmm. Then it goes out, and it's that we mustn't do any at all, and we can't have anything that's not with the ball. And this, I think, if you get your own methodology and you know you're on solid ground and principles yourself, and it's based on practical experience, like saying you at Spurs when you've seen the results, how how can you not work that way when you see the changes in the coming young players? Hmm. It's interesting, I mean, and also, you know, look, there's many different ways to do things. Football's, a, you know, sport and, you know, there's many people doing great things at different clubs, I suppose, you know, having a balance. But so what's what's next for you then? You know, you're, you're meditating, so you've managed to sit still here for 50 minutes or whatever you are now. What, what's, what's, what's in the future for you? I mean, you know, what are the next projects for yourself? Well, I just try and focus on today. I probably used to spend too much time looking at the future. In the end, I ended up getting myself into a real mess personally i think in uh, a sort of a mental health point of view i started drinking like a fish that took me down i had built up all this stuff i think it was really after southampton uh, all of that started i'd ended up in a sort of national newspaper uh battle with harry redknapp and different things like that and began a real decline and in 2012 i sold the soccer schools when i was in terribly bad health and wasn't actually sure at that point even at how much longer I'd I suppose live to be perfectly honest with you and so I spent a couple of years recovering my health um, making sure that things were good in my f 
family and all that type of thing and putting that first and slowly came back into work and but have ended up working with with i suppose for this stage of my life what i enjoy which is working with individuals so i've got a a project for younger players called integer football which is um quite a holistic way to um approach development and and coaching um focusing on the person in the main and from that you know if we're trying to move towards football getting the footballer is is uh is easier i'm not explaining myself too too well with that you can maybe ask me more on it in a minute but and in addition to that working with professional players which i've been doing since 2014 and um in a sort of even in a just a helping sense and not in a, a formal sense um, but it was that really that got me back into to got me back going again and so in a more formal setting today i work with a a football agency where i mentor all of their players so that isn't you know necessarily doing technical or something like that again in a holistic sense in a life sense some of the life experiences that i've had you know you can help them through the ups and downs so i find that very very fulfilling as well also fantastic all right simon thanks very much it's been, it's been uh, really uh, a fantastic uh, 55 minutes so i appreciate you uh, coming on thanks very much all cheers Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.